Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. The Wise Traditions Speaker Series continues as I interview Chris Masterjohn. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. A team of researchers from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem recently presented their work at the European Association for the Study of Diabetes, which found that a breakfast consisting of protein and fat can help people with type 2 diabetes in better controlling both their hunger and blood sugar levels. This study included people that were overweight and ones with type 2 diabetes. They were broken into two groups, one that received a small breakfast and another that was given a big breakfast. The big breakfast group had a large portion of it consisting of protein and fat. The big breakfast group found better levels across the board of blood glucose and blood pressure. The authors of the study also hypothesized that the findings are in relation to reduction in markers of inflammation. An important study in us learning more about the benefits of high fat. Another recent study was published by the Pakistan Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences, which says that garlic is as effective as the drug atinolol in terms of lowering blood pressure in patients diagnosed with hypertension. When it came to higher doses of garlic, the results were better than the subjects that were given atinolol. Like Hippocrates, I'm a big advocate of food being the medicine, and it's rare to find clinical studies comparing natural substances with drugs. I hope we see more of these in the future to let people know that we can use proper nutrition instead of pharmaceuticals as cures. And finally, Natural News recently wrote an article about how half of the gluten-free products still contain toxins. The piece mentions how many gluten-free foods contain additives such as MSG, aspartame, sorbitol, sucralose, maltodextrin, and GMO sugar. These ingredients can clog up the digestive system and cause central nervous system disorders and ailments. I applaud Natural News for approaching this. As we're more aware of celiac disease, many food manufacturers are releasing gluten-free products. I believe people without celiac disease are fine with consuming gluten, but also understand that many people can't digest it. I'm all for more gluten-free foods being on the market, but it's important to realize that being labeled as gluten-free doesn't mean healthy. It's always important to read the labels to see that they aren't loaded with artificial ingredients. Or better yet, bake your own gluten-free foods from scratch. And now for the main course. With less than five weeks to go until the Wise Traditions Conference, we have another guest that will be speaking in Atlanta. The theme of this year's conference is Curing the Incurable, Holistic Therapies for Chronic Disease. One of the speakers for the main track will be Chris Masterjohn, Chris has a PhD in Nutritional Sciences from the University of Connecticut and is currently working as a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Illinois, where he's studying fat-soluble vitamins. He also maintains the blog Cholesterol and Health and is a frequent contributor to the Wise Traditions Quarterly Journal. In addition to all of this, Chris Masterjohn has also been a regular speaker at the Wise Traditions conferences with his presentations on fat-soluble vitamins. For this year's theme of Curing the Incurable, 
He'll be talking about how fat-soluble vitamins are important in the prevention of heart disease. Chris's presentations, as well as his writings, are a must-see for anyone that's interested in the topics of this show, as well as anyone that's into natural health. So I proudly welcome Chris Masterjohn back to the program. Chris, great to have you here again. Great to be here again, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me on. And the last time that we had you on, you were finishing up your PhD in nutritional sciences. So since then, you've gotten your PhD and you have a research program at the University of Illinois. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I, I graduated with my PhD in August of 2012. And then uh, at the end of September 2012, I moved out to Urbana, Illinois, where the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign campus is. Uh, to work in the laboratory of Dr. Fred Kumaro. Dr. Kumaro has been around for quite a long time. In fact, he just turned uh, 99 as of this recording and a few days ago by the time this is published. And um, he actually, he retired in 1972, uh, but he's, he's stayed active in research as Professor Emeritus uh, for decades now. And um, his laboratory was critical of trans fats going back to the 1950s. Um, so, and, and he's also done a lot of work on heart disease and oxidation of lipoproteins and, and a number of other areas. Uh, but in any case, uh, Dr. Kumaro offered me um, a place to pursue my interest in fat-soluble vitamins. And so I'm currently working on a research project to look at interactions between vitamins A, D, and K along the lines of what I've been writing about in, for example, Wise Traditions, the quarterly journal of the Weston A. Price Foundation for the last half decade or so. And uh, so that's my main research project now. And we're trying to also uh, do a number of things on the side while that goes forward uh, that are of interest potentially to people in the Weston A. Price and ancestral health movements, like looking at uh, how different methods of food preparation or growing food affects the nutritional value and, and other aspects of the quality of those foods and things like that. And from what I understand, this is the start of a program at University of Illinois that can hopefully become a full research center for Western Price Studies. Uh, that, that is the long-term goal. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll, I think we're taking things one step at a time right now, and um, there's a major fundraising effort to get... Uh, to get the laboratory off the ground and kind of on its feet in that respect. Um, so, um, f you know, first things first. And right now we're, we're just getting our feet wet in terms of, in terms of coming up with small research projects that are, that are of interest to the foundation and, and carrying this one major project with the fat-soluble vitamins forward. So explain to the listeners a little more what fat-soluble vitamins are specifically. Sure. Well, you could, I guess you could look at this two ways. You know, when we refer to fat-soluble vitamins and water-soluble vitamins, we're classifying them based on their, their chemistry, basically, based on their solubility characteristics, which isn't all that interesting. It simply means that fat-soluble vitamins are soluble in fat and water-soluble vitamins are soluble in, in water. Uh, I think it's more interesting to look at the vitamins in terms of how they actually relate to each other functionally and physiologically. So I tend to look at vitamins A, D, and K as a trio because they work together in very direct fundamental ways 
to regulate a number of things, but the most well-established interaction between them is in the regulation of where calcium goes in the body. So we want to make sure that calcium goes in the heart tissues, the bones and teeth, where it promotes vibrant health and stays out of the soft tissues, which are basically all the other tissues. And they could range from blood vessels and heart valves. And when we get calcium where it's not supposed to go in these soft tissues, uh, we get things like kidney stones if it goes in the kidneys, heart disease if it's going in the blood vessels and heart valves, or poor growth if it's going in the cartilage because this is especially relevant to growing children. Their growth ends when the growth plate, vibrant growth in children, then we really need to keep calcium out of those cartilage growth plates until the proper time. So that's, that's one example of how vitamins A, D, and K work together on a functional level. And the one other fat-soluble vitamin that's missing from that picture is vitamin E. But I see vitamin E, uh, although it's fat-soluble, I see it more associated with the water-soluble vitamin C because they're both critical antioxidants, and they worked directly together uh, to protect our cells, our tissues, and all the components in those cells and tissues from what we call oxidative stress. And oxidative stress, if you want to make a, a reasonable analogy, you could make one to uh, iron rusting. So when you have anything that has iron in it, uh, you could have, um, you know, say it's your bicycle or, or, or a wheel on a car or something like that. You can eventually, when you have exposure to uh, water and oxygen and so on, you get rust. And the most noticeable thing about this is that it's, starts to look brown and flaky and so on. But the, um, but, but the long-term consequence of that is that it starts to lose its form and it eventually loses its, its function. So you basically, uh, oxidation has uh, this nasty tendency to ruin things. And although our own tissues don't actually rust, uh, they undergo different processes of oxidation that have similar effects in that these uh, damaging processes will eventually destroy the proper function of those components of our cells and tissues. So vitamins E and C are interacting to basically protect our tissues from the long-term damage that comes along with aging and along with exposure to uh, toxins and, and numerous other sources of, of oxidation. So if you want to talk about fat-soluble vitamins as a class, then uh, we could say that vitamin E um, and vitamin A, D, and K all belong there, but just in different functional networks. And one thing that I'll touch on in my talk uh, this coming November at Wise Traditions is how these different functional classes actually, um, when, you, when you sort of peel back the next layer of the onion in terms of biological complexity, they actually start to interact with and support each other. Because if we look at heart disease, for example, there are two critical things that we want to prevent. One is abnormal calcification of the blood vessels and heart valves, and the other is preventing uh, lipids and other important um, components of our cells and tissues from undergoing this oxidative damage. And both of these two processes, oxidative damage and abnormal pathological soft tissue calcification, contribute to heart disease. And so on the, on the one hand, we can say we want to support both processes independently uh, in order to protect ourselves from heart disease. 
And like you said, your speech at the conference is going to be on how fat-soluble vitamins can prevent heart disease. What foods are the best sources of fat-soluble vitamins to prevent heart disease? Well, fat-soluble vitamins, um, as the name might suggest, uh, tend to be associated with fat. And, and that's, you know, that's one interesting thing uh, where we might actually want to look at the uh, at the vitamins in terms of their chemical classification, in terms of their solubility. Because one interesting thing about the fact that these vitamins are fat-soluble is that not only do they tend to be associated with fat in the diet, but also fat is necessary for their proper digestion and absorption. So there are numerous studies showing that even if the fat-soluble vitamin comes from another food in the diet, consuming it with additional fat increases its absorption uh, and increases its bioavailability so that you can actually um, you know, incorporate this vitamin into your tissues and use it properly. And not only does it, not only is the amount of fat important, but also the type of fat is also important. So the lower the fat is in polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are most abundant in modern vegetable oils, um, the more effective the fat is at promoting the bioavailability of the fat-soluble vitamins. That means that traditional fats like butter and tallow and so on are a lot better at promoting the bioavailability of these vitamins than uh, modern vegetable oils like corn oil, safflower oil, and sunflower oil and so on. But if we look at the specific foods where we want to get these fat-soluble vitamins, uh, it becomes a little bit more complicated because uh, they each of the fat-soluble vitamins has its own distribution. So vitamin D is particularly interesting because we not only get vitamin D from food, but we also get vitamin D uh, from the sunshine because we have a precursor to vitamin D, which is closely related to cholesterol that's present in our skin. And when we go out in the sun, the sun converts that precursor into vitamin D and then we, and then we absorb it. Um, so simply going outside and getting fresh air and sunshine is important to obtain these fat-soluble vitamins. Vitamin D can also be found in foods, most abundantly in fatty fish and in fish oils, and f particularly fish liver oils. Uh, so for example, cod liver oil is a great source of vitamin D. Vitamin A, its distribution is a little bit different. You can't get vitamin A from the sunshine. And vitamin A also falls into several different categories. So there's true vitamin A, or preformed vitamin A, we might say, which is only found in animal foods. And the most abundant sources of this true vitamin A are liver and fish liver oils, for example, cod liver oil. But the liver of any terrestrial animal uh, is also a good source of vitamin A. And so that includes beef liver, uh, goat liver, buffalo liver, chicken liver, etc., etc. Um, but vitamin A can also be obtained through converting precursors found in plant foods that are either beta-carotene or closely related carotenoids. And these are pigments in plants that give plants their colors. So if you look at basically any plant that is either red, orange, yellow, or green, that uh, plant will be rich in either beta-carotene or these closely related carotenoids. Uh, many of which are precursors to vitamin A. The problem with getting vitamin A from plant foods, however, is that uh, there are numerous factors that affect the conversion from the carotenoid to the true vitamin A besides how much of it we need. And some of those factors are genetic, which means that for some people, 
getting uh, carotenoids from colorful vegetables may be a great source of vi vitamin A, but for other people, it may be a terrible source of vitamin A, and you don't really know which one you are. And then beyond that, there are numerous other factors like hormonal status, um, heavy metals, the amount of other nutrients in the diet, and so on and so forth that affect the conversion. So it's good to eat red, yellow, orange, and green vegetables as a supplement to our vitamin A uh, status, but the most robust and reliable way to get vitamin A is to make sure we also consume liver in our diet, whether it's the liver of terrestrial animals or something like cod liver oil. And then finally, there's vitamin K. Vitamin K comes in two forms, vitamin K1 and vitamin K2. In general, vitamin K2 is more effective at supporting the types of roles that I've been talking about, like protecting soft tissues from calcification, supporting good growth, and uh, supporting proper development and um, health of the bones and teeth. Um, in general, vitamin K2 is better than vitamin K1 at supporting those functions, but there is some overlap between the two, and they're not, uh, they're not completely distinct uh, vitamins. So vitamin K1 is found mostly in leafy greens, and vitamin K2 is found mostly in animal fats and fermented foods. And there are some particular foods that have been measured to be very high in, uh, in vitamin K2, like goose liver, for example, and natto, which is a sort of obscure fermented soy food that's mostly consumed in eastern Japan and has a reputation for not having all that uh, appealing of a taste and texture and smell to many Westerners. Um, in any case, what we see is that in order to get the, the fat-soluble vitamins, the best thing to do is cover all of these bases and when we can get them in more than one way to get them both ways. And what that means is that not only do we want to eat a good diet, but we also want to get outside and get fresh air and sunshine, which is also good because we're more likely to be active and so on and so forth. And then to also eat um, a diet that includes organ meats like liver or cod liver oil and a diet that includes leafy green vegetables, red, yellow, orange, uh, vegetables, all these different colors of vegetables, and that includes animal fats and fermented foods. And in addition to plants being a supplement for your vitamin A, would you also say that in terms of vitamin D, not all the needs can be met by simply going out and getting sunshine? It really depends on the person and the environment and so on and so forth. Um, I'm, I'm not an advocate of the idea that because we don't live in equatorial Africa, we all need to take a vitamin D supplement. Uh, but it's, it's definitely true that there have been numerous adaptations to living further away from the equator. And one of those is to get vitamin D from the diet. So for example, this is especially clear in the Arctic, where the traditional diets really emphasize getting adequate amounts of fish and uh, bones from fish in order to supply vitamin D and calcium. And that in includes uh, numerous methods of preserving these foods so that they can be available year-round. Um, and so, yes, basically no matter where you are, it's a much better idea to uh, get the fat-soluble vitamins from more than one source simply because that makes your overall diet and lifestyle more robust to error. You're only relying on sun for your vitamin D then you have numerous problems that you can run into, like, do I get out in the sun enough? 
Am I wearing too many clothes when I'm out in the sun? Is the sun not a great source of vitamin D in my area because of the tall buildings and the pollution? Are my genetics a little bit different? And for that, those are other reasons. Do Am I not very efficient at making vitamin D from the sun? And then you can have another set of questions about whether you're efficient at extracting vitamin D from the diet. But the fact is that if you're getting vitamin D both from the diet and from the sun, then your, your, your diet and lifestyle is more robust to error because if one of those sources is not as good a source as you think it is, you're covering your bases by meeting it in, in other ways. Um, but yeah, there are going to be some cases um, where targeted supplementation of extra vitamin D may also be called for. Um, but I just uh, would like to go on the record saying that I, I do think that uh, probably uh, too many people are taking too much vitamin D supplements. So I don't, I don't want to advocate the idea that everyone uh, outside the equator needs to be taking vitamin D supplements. And I'd like to make that clear. I know it's sometimes an argument from vegetarians and vegans that you don't need the vitamin D from the food and you can get it all from the sun. And Kayla Daniel has responded to that saying that the only way you can get it all from the sun is if you're out naked in the sun every time of day. And I wouldn't advocate the supplements either. I meant that more as we need to get some from food as well as from the sun. Um, sure. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to make an absolutist comment about that. I think some people can get all the vitamin D that they need from the sun. I just think that you're, I mean, un unless you're rigorously quantifying your vitamin D status, which is a lot more complex, simply measuring 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, which is commonly taken to be this sort of standalone perfect marker of vitamin D status, you're a lot better off if your diet and lifestyle are robust to, to those errors. It, you, can, you can make the same argument about beta carotene. For some people, they're going to get all the vitamin A that they need by eating colorful vegetables. Uh, the problem with eating colorful vegetables isn't that it's not a good source of vitamin A for anyone. The problem is that you don't know whether you're one of those people who do perfectly on colorful vegetables for vitamin A with no other source in your diet, or whether you're one of those people who over time develops a deficiency of vitamin A until you're on that diet for an extended period of time and you get to see whether you develop a deficiency or not. And so the last way you want to find out that that's not a good way of getting that vitamin for you is to start developing health problems from deficiency. It's better to just cover all your bases and... Um, support support vitamin status in a broad way rather than narrowing in on one particular source of any given vitamin. And you were talking earlier about how you can get fat-soluble vitamins by eating them with other foods. Is that kind of similar to, say, putting butter on your vegetables? Yeah, that's that's exactly the kind of point. Numerous studies have shown that basically the more fat you eat with any given fat-soluble vitamin the more of that vitamin you're going to absorb. And in the case of beta carotene, conversion to vitamin A is dependent on uh, absorption of the, of the beta carotene in the first place. And so it's also true that if you're eating vegetables that have beta carotene or other pro-vitamin A carotenoids in them, the more fat you eat with those vegetables, the more actual vitamin A, true vitamin A, you're going to extract uh, from them. So there are numerous implications of that. The, the most simple and tasty way uh, to get, you know, to, to take advantage of that fact is 
to put butter on your vegetables or really to incorporate fat in the meal with those vegetables in any way. So you could, if you don't like butter on your broccoli and you put butter on your potatoes and eat broccoli on the side, then you're achieving the same thing. It's really the total amount of fat in the meal uh, that's important. And I, I guess another, you know, the flip side of that is that you don't want to only eat fat and vegetables. Um, so there, obviously, you can get too much fat in the sense that um, if you're if you're displacing other important nutrients in the diet, uh, then you then you might not be getting enough of those nutrients. So each person has to strike a simple balance. But I think one you know simple way of doing that is to just incorporate fat into your diet in ways that taste good and make you in, enjoy your meal better. Similarly to eating fat with vegetables, I've also heard with fruit, because they are high in fructose, which is a sugar, that there are benefits to eating some type of fat when you have fruit and you can digest the fructose better. Uh, I, I, I would be really surprised if eating fat with fruit helped you digest the fructose better. Um, but, you know, I really enjoy fruit in uh, fatty things like berries in my yogurt and, and so on and so forth. But I, I personally, I actually find that um, when, I, when I overdo uh, plant foods like um, leafy green vegetables and, and fruit, I tend to, um, I, I tend to, to develop some uh, reactions to them, like just certain types of sores in my mouth that are sort of like anchor sores. And I, f I actually find that eating fruit away from fat um, is, is helpful for me to tolerate I'm not sure exactly what, but whatever these um, plant chemicals that seem to um, be irritating to my mouth are, I, I seem to do better if I just eat the f eat the fruit without fat. But I, you know, it's it's one of those things that I don't really like to make rules about. Um, I don't. I think there's a lot of, um, frankly, paranoia about fructose, and I don't think that um, eating several pieces of fruit by themselves is going to do most people any harm. So, and at the same time, I, I, don't, I don't like paranoia about fat either. So I would just say if you like eating, say, an apple or several apples or a plate full of strawberries without any whipped cream or without, you know, a pie associated with the apple um, and you feel great when you do that, then do that. And if you prefer... Uh, to put your apples in a pie or you prefer to pour whipped cream all over your strawberries and you feel great when you do that, um, then do that. You know, there, There's always ups and downs to how you combine different foods and I think it's just, I think it's counterproductive to try to micromanage it and make kind of rules for everyone. Like you should always eat your fruit with fat or you should always eat your fruit um, without fat. So, so at that level, I'm, I'm sort of an advocate of incorporate some fat into your diet incorporate some fruit into your diet and, and mix and match it, you know, however you like. I would agree. I think every person has a little different system and it's more about that you're getting both in your diet at some point in your daily routine. We'll talk more about fat-soluble vitamins, but first a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, 
Let us be your Sprite of Grain and Flour Source. Certified Organic and Kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free Sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website OrganicSproutedFlour.net or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm speaking with Chris Masterjohn. Chris Masterjohn has a program going at the University of Illinois where he's researching fat-soluble vitamins. In addition, he is going to be a speaker at the Wise Traditions Conference. And Chris, I know your speech that you usually give at the Wise Traditions Conference is on fat-soluble vitamins. And this one is also about fat-soluble vitamins, but with the whole theme of curing the incurable and specifically how fat-soluble vitamins can prevent heart disease. So what are some things you're going to talk about in this specific presentation that you haven't discussed before? Uh, sure. So, um, well, actually, I, you know, I have given talks at Wise Traditions about fat-soluble vitamins, but I, I don't really have a usual talk that I give at Wise Traditions because I tend to give a different talk um, every year, sometimes multiple ones. But um, yeah, I've definitely, you know, the, the fat-soluble vitamins is definitely something that I've given numerous talks on and I've also written numerous articles and blog posts on and so on and so forth. Um, so this talk is basically going to um, kind of take a tour of uh, first what causes heart disease and then that's going to be like the, the, maybe the first half of it or so. And then it's going to go into um, how do the, how do the fat, what are the numerous different ways that the fat-soluble vitamins uh, can protect against heart disease. And so one of the thing I mean, I guess one of the ways that this will very closely tie into things I've talked about and written a lot about before is on this issue of calcification. And so pathological calcification can contribute to heart disease in a number of different ways, including, um, including, including a, a contribution to atherosclerosis and also calcification of the middle portion of the blood vessels, which is actually a, a different phenomenon. And in the course of this talk, I will bring up some new uh, research on calcification that I haven't really talked about before, uh, which is the, uh, the role of microcalcifications that are uh, too small to actually be detected by uh, coronary artery calcium scans and how those um, sort of stealth calcifications actually uh, make a major contribution to destabilizing um, the fibrous cap of an atherosclerotic plaque, which is 
the uh, event that initiates a clot that can lead to a heart attack or stroke. And I'm also going to look at new research suggesting that calcification actually happens in the earliest stages of atherosclerosis, um, whereas uh, f- for a long time we've, we've tended to think of it as something that only affects advanced atherosclerosis. But I'm also going to talk about three other uh, key ways that the fat-soluble vitamins uh, interact in this way. Uh, one is going to be to look at the role of vitamin E, and vitamin E is sort of this fourth fat-soluble vitamin that I've tended not to write much about when I write about Uh, fat-soluble vitamins because I've tended to focus on these direct interactions between vitamins A, D, and K. Uh, But I'm going to take this talk along the lines of the antioxidant network and kind of veer into that territory more than I have in other talks. So I'll I'll be taking a look at uh, where to get vitamin E in the diet and how it interacts with other nutrients in order to Uh, protect our tissues from oxidative damage and thereby protect against atherosclerosis. Uh, Another thing that I'm going to be, um, that I'm going to be talking about is, is sort of peeling back another layer of the onion of biological complexity, uh, as I like to put it. You know, whenever you look at these vitamin interactions or, or nutrient interactions, you always have very direct levels of interaction, but it's, but it's like peeling uh, layers of an onion back because when you look at the next layer of interactions, you you see things in a more complex way. But then you can p- keep peeling back those layers of the onion until you realize that basically everything is interacting with everything else. Um, so, so I'm going to peel back one more layer and look at how um, vitamins A, D, and K are interacting with the antioxidant network in order to um, regulate uh, for example, the expression of genes that are involved in uh, in the antioxidant network, and that'll help kind of bring these two different nutrient networks um, into a, like a, a broader framework that emphasizes the the synergy among all these different uh, nutrients. And then I'm also going to take a look at how the fat soluble vitamins are not only protecting against uh, abnormal calcification and supporting the antioxidant network, but also how they interact. Uh, to promote uh, cell survival and proper cell metabolism, which is uh, a whole other aspect of the atherosclerotic process uh, because we not only have accumulation of oxidizing uh, lipids and abnormal accumulation of calcification, but we also have abnormal cellular death. So look at how fat-soluble vitamins protect against that process as well. In addition to fat-soluble vitamins being able to prevent heart disease, are there some other chronic illnesses that fat-soluble vitamins are also important in preventing against? Uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the most obvious ones, if you're, gonna, if you're just going to look at how vitamins A, D, and K regulate calcium metabolism, you have osteoporosis. Uh, so what, you, what you're getting in, in old age in many people is this association between heart disease and osteoporosis. And one of the things that's happening is that the calcium is not going into the bones where it's supposed to be, and it's going into the blood vessels. So you get these these two paired up. But really, when you look at any degenerative disease, you start to see that uh, all of these degenerative diseases have a number of processes in common. And oxidative damage is one of those uh, processes that seems to underlie uh, most, if not all, uh, chronic degenerative diseases. 
And so whenever you see oxidative damage, you need to go back to the basic principles that I'll be outlining in this talk. How do fat-soluble vitamins uh, protect against oxidative damage? And so you can broaden, uh, you can broaden the basic principle um, from protecting against heart disease to basically protecting against all degenerative diseases. So would you say that fat-soluble vitamins are also key in prevention of things such as like cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's disease? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in cancer, it goes even beyond that. So uh, vitamins A, D, and K, although their direct interactions on the cancer front are not that well established compared to their direct interactions on the calcium front, um, there is compelling evidence tying uh, all three vitamins to the protection against cancer. And in fact, one of the, one of the most uh, remarkable clinical trials was one showing that high doses of vitamin K2 almost abolished, we're talking a roughly 90% reduction of liver cancer in women who had viral cirrhosis. Uh, so, and that's just looking at the one vitamin alone that seems to have p potential for abolishing, almost abolishing the risk of cancer in this particular subgroup. There, there are also trials showing that vitamin A supplementation protects against certain cancers, uh, and there's a lot of evidence potentially t tying vitamin D as well to certain cancers. And so one thing that hasn't been looked at on this front is what happens when you take a synergistic perspective of these vitamins, and instead of just supplementing with massive doses of one of them, uh, you actually try to optimize the functional networks of these nutrients along the lines of what I've been writing about how you optimize them uh, for, for the sake of directing calcium where it's supposed to go. What happens when we optimize them for the sake of preventing cancer? I imagine that we'd see even more remarkable results than what's already been shown. And this is a little plug for another thing at the Wise Traditions. I know my good friend, Dr. Deborah Gordon, is going to speak about preventing breast cancer, and I'm sure that she'll work in in some way about how fat-soluble vitamins can be used in prevention of that. Yeah, absolutely. There, there will be many other talks at Wise Traditions that I'm sure will overlap with mine uh, a little bit and, and, and look at fat-soluble vitamins and other nutrients in, a, in a, a wide variety of seemingly incurable diseases. I think so, because a lot of times your presentations usually fall under the main theme of the Wise Traditions Conference. In addition to people trying to blame cholesterol uh, for heart disease, which your blog is all about debunking, Another thing that people have tried to associate heart disease with was carnitine. And I love that right after the study was released, you had an article debunking it. Tell us a little about why the Cleveland Clinic study about carnitine was flawed. There was, um, yeah, so there, there, there was actually a flurry of studies uh, that came out uh, over the past couple of years attempting to blame heart disease on this compound called trimethylamine oxide, or TMAO. And this series of studies has basically tried to ultimately attribute the blame for this compound, TMAO, on basically a wide variety of animal foods that have long been demonized for other reasons. So the, the first claim was that choline contributes to heart disease because it generates TMAO. And choline is found most abundantly in egg yolks and also in other animal foods and animal fats. And uh, then the second study coming out of the same group but published more recently was blaming 
choline on carnitine, excuse me, was blaming TMAO on carnitine, which is a, uh, most abundantly found in red meat, but again, also in, in, in many other meat products and animal foods. And so, the mo- I mean, there are numerous ways that you could pick this study apart, but by far and away, the most sort of damning flaw in, in this overall paradigm is the fact that uh, several studies have been done in humans about which foods generate TMAO in the blood, this compound that, that according to this group, contributes to heart disease. And uh, overwhelmingly, what these studies have shown is that by far and away, the most ab- abundant source of TMAO uh, in humans is seafood, uh, fish and shellfish, because these foods uh, tend to be, tend to have their own uh, trimethyl, uh, trimethylamine and trimethylamine oxide, because fish actually use this compound in order to uh, regulate osmotic pressure. And uh, as a result, they actually have the compound in their flesh when you eat it. And so naturally you absorb some of it. What this research group was trying to say is that uh, when carnitine and choline reach your intestines, bacteria can convert it into uh, trimethylamine and then it will eventually be turned into trimethylamine oxide, which then contributes to atherosclerosis. But if these studies were showing that Dozens and dozens of different foods had no effect in generating TMAO in humans, whereas eating uh, fish and seafood generated massive amounts of this compound that were efficiently excreted in the urine. That seems to argue against the idea that red meat or egg yolks are specific causes of heart disease because they contain these potential precursors to TMAO. And if, in fact, uh, getting TMAO in our blood from dietary sources is a major cause of heart disease, then we would think that people who eat more fish and more shellfish should be the people who have the most heart disease, whereas there is basically no evidence supporting that, and there seems to be evidence uh, that at least seems to contradict it. Uh, and in, in general, it's widely recommended that people uh, consume more fish and less uh, of, of egg yolks and red meat and so on and so forth uh, by, by you know, advocates of the establishment uh, point of view in order to reduce the risk of chronic diseases like heart disease. And so what, what's really disturbing about these studies is that this group didn't even really tackle that question because you know, their, the, the implications of their research, if it's true, once you look at these other studies, would seem to be that we should eat more red meat and egg yolks and less <laughs> fish, you know. But but they didn't. They never. They never. Uh, they never actually like tackled that aspect of the question. So there are there are you know we, we could spend a whole show delving into other flaws in these in these studies in terms of the the statistics and 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 certain methodological things. But I would say that that is that is by far and away the 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 biggest. 
uh, flaw in the overall paradigm is that they didn't deal with this fact that fish and seafood should be the main causes of heart disease rather than beef and egg yolks if their uh, theory that TMAO is such a bad guy is true. Hmm. There's a great idea for a future show, although I kind of in some ways hope that this whole TMAO thing has kind of died down. Is it still being discussed a lot or since that study have they kind of not been discussing as much the issue of TMAO in terms of heart disease? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't like, I, I get wind of these discussions when someone publishes a New York times article and then someone else emails it to me and says, will you please look at this study? So I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't read, I, I don't keep up with the, uh, health science sections of major newspapers, so I, I don't really know whether people are still discussing this, but I, but certainly it's not um, making its way to my inbox anymore, and you know I, I don't I, I don't really see flurries of TMAO, TMAO related posts on social media or anything like that. So if it's not grabbing my attention, I'm guessing that it's uh, largely died down. But who knows? You know, I'm sure this. Uh, this research group has has a, a next step in their um, in their plan of attack. I'm sure that you know next year they're they're going to have um, other studies that they're going to you, you know they really uh, when they came out with this last one they actually they published one in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, less than a month I or roughly a month after they uh, published this one in Nature and uh, it really seemed like they coordinated the release of these papers with uh with this you know flurry of of media um media targets uh kind of they they it really seemed like they like they planned it out for this uh sort of full on attack of media blitz of this issue so that it was all that everyone was talking about for a little while uh so i i would be surprised if they were just going to let it die down and didn't have you know s- something else up their sleeve and I would be surprised if the next thing that they have up their sleeve is not just as well coordinated to maximize media attention as these were. So I'm sure this topic will be coming up again in the future. You're probably right. These kind of things don't typically just die down if there's someone that believes in it, that they will want to do more experiments. I know that there was one study that was done with the Mayo Clinic that found the opposite. So if we do see more in the news, I think you can expect on the show a full episode uh, all debunking it. I know another problem with the study that they didn't seem to bring up was that there were some vegetables such as mushrooms that contain more TMAO than red meat or egg yolks. Well, right. I mean, the the thing is red meat and egg yolks, according to some studies that have been done, just aren't significant sources of it at all, really. So, um, So when you compare red meat and egg yolks, to numerous other vegetables, you get a little bit more, a little bit less. Basically, none of those foods are, are actually sources, significant sources of TMAO. Um, it's just fish and, and shellfish that are. So it eventually does boil down to that question. Well, if you're going to b- blame beef, why don't you blame carrots, which generate a similar amount of TMAO, or peanuts, or peas, which generate more TMAO and so on. But, you know, the the other aspect of that is really none of these uh, vegetable foods or the beef and egg yolks 
are generating significant amounts of TMAO in, in some of these human studies that have, been, that have been done. And regarding the Mayo Clinic, I think what you're referring to was an analysis of, um, of the, uh, the potential of carnitine to actually have therapeutic value in, uh, in cases of heart failure. And so carnitine, there, there have been numerous studies suggesting that carnitine supplementation itself is, uh, has a therapeutic role in certain, certain um, heart disease-related contexts. And so that, I, I wouldn't say those studies are really showing the exact opposite of what the Cleveland Clinic group was showing, but they are cer certainly painting carnitine in this different light where it comes out more as a heart-related hero rather than a heart-related villain. And that's a, that's a major conundrum. If carnitine is going to be the principal cause of heart disease and is also going to have major therapeutic value in helping people uh, survive through cases of heart disease with the, with the least damage and in the most, hel most helpful way, then you really have a paradox that needs to be resolved before you start um, making recommendations about how much carnitine-rich foods people should be eating. You're right. That was what the Mayo Clinic's finding was about, is that there's actually benefits of carnitine. I think it goes along with what Chris Kresser said, is TMAO the new cholesterol? Because as we've been so trained to believe that cholesterol is bad for you, and as your blog says, you can't live without it. Similarly, there are actually health benefits to get carnitine in your diet. Yeah, a absolutely. And I, you know, I think that you, carnitine is something that we also uh, make ourselves uh, and, and for good reason. You know, it, it plays important physiological roles in the body. So, you, you know, whenever, these, whenever people come out with this viewpoint that one or the other thing is good or one or the other thing is bad uh, and they try to turn some molecular compound into an angel or a demon – I'm always skeptical of of the overall paradigm there because it's very rare that you can just say, oh, this is a good chemical and that's a bad chemical. You know, biology just doesn't work like that. It, it's always complex and it's always about context. And what we want to do, I think, is not so much have, you know, our, our gang of, of villain chemicals that we're against – and our team of heroic chemicals that we're for. But what I think what we wanted to do is, is nourish the body in a way that uh, enables the body to properly use all these different compounds in a healthful way. And in order to enable the body to do that, we need to move away from this demonization of natural compounds. We just need to, whether it's carnitine or it's fructose or it's fat or whatever, um, you know, different different camps of people like to demonize different uh, compounds. And I think we just need to move away from that perspective uh, entirely and think more in terms of how do we enable the body uh, to healthfully use all that is given to it. Another one that a lot of people tend to demonize, which I think is over-demonized and they're actually maybe some advantages, or at least it's not a problem for everyone, is gluten. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think gluten is very over-demonized. I, I made my, my website, cholesterolandhealth.com, uh, back in 2005 because it seemed like 
you know, cholesterol had this very unfair uh, reputation as this villain in heart disease. It's possible that if I waited, you know, five or six or seven years to make my website, I would have made it about gluten or fructose <laughs> instead, um, you know, because... Uh, there, you know, there are people who love cholesterol, and then they just have their their own set of foods to hate on. Uh, you know, I, in my personal opinion, I would say that gluten is even over demonized in the case of celiac disease, because uh, I, I think the evidence in, indicates to me that uh, gluten is gluten cl uh, clear uh, clearly. Of course, gluten is kind of a, a it's it's not the best word because it, it, technically you could refer to any proteins from grains. But wheat, clo wheat gluten or gliadin and, and related proteins clearly have a pathological role in someone with celiac disease. Uh, but I would even say that uh, the role of wheat gluten uh, and and related uh and related grain proteins is actually overemphasized in celiac disease because in order for celiac disease to develop in the first place, I believe that numerous, the evidence indicates to me that numerous other things need to go wrong in the, in the gut and with the immune system in order to uh, prime someone to respond with that type of intolerance. And yes, there is some evidence that People who do not have celiac disease have intolerances to wheat, but it's not always clear that those people have an intolerance to gluten because there are other things in wheat that can be problematic, especially to someone who has uh, major digestive systems. There are types of carbohydrates that, in, uh, that are in wheat that are, are, are less tolerable and so on and so forth. And um, there, there may well be... Uh, people who need to permanently stay away from uh, gluten. But, you know, I think that the jury is, is out on that. Like there are some studies that indicate that with proper fermentation of, of wheat, that even people with celiac may be able uh, to tolerate them. I, so far, we only have short-term studies. I think more research is needed in that area before anyone actually acts on that. I, I do think that it's uh, for the foreseeable uh, future before until this is researched uh, in more detail, I do think that people with celiac disease um, or any other kind of established intolerant, uh, intolerance to wheat should stay away from it. Uh, but th there, that research does look potentially promising. And also, um, there's this is controversial, but there's considerable reason to think that a uh, strict gluten-free diet is not effective in reversing all of the intestinal pathology, even in someone with celiac disease. And so that sort of goes back to the question of what causes that intolerance in the first place, and it is, more, is it more than simply eating wheat? And, and if that's the case, then are there aspects of treating celiac disease that we are missing out on because we're so focused on treating it with a gluten-free diet? Do we need to broaden the approach to treating it? And if we can truly reverse the intestinal pathology, can someone go back to eating uh, wheat if it's properly processed in a way that minimizes the potential to respond to it with intolerance, such as with long fermentation and so on and so forth? That's my view of, of celiac. I think with you know non-celiac gluten intolerance, 
I think that the science is much less clear. It's not clear at all to me whether people who don't do well on wheat are best described as gluten intolerant because it's not clear to me that what they're primarily not tolerating is the gluten protein. It could be other things. And until we understand that in much more detail, then it's very much unclear that uh, whether um, you know this is is like celiac where it's something that uh, may be a permanent condition where someone you know, has to avoid all, uh, all gluten for the rest of their life, and at least until we understand the situation better, or whether it's just some digestive issue that is better resolved through a completely different uh, set of principles to imp- improve digestion. Um, and then, you know, of course, I, I also think there, there's definitely a camp out there that thinks that um, no one should eat grains. I don't even think there's uh, like decent evidence um, supporting that idea at all. Uh, so, but but I also I don't think that that is really the mainstream uh, camp that's out there criticizing gluten uh, either. So, so I think there's a, a there's a there's a range of ideas out there that demonize gluten, and there's 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 some truth. Uh, in them, but I think we need a much broader perspective that really moves away from this idea that this one particular protein is uh, is an evil protein, and looks at you know looks at questions like how do we uh, support the 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 body's ability to tolerate the broadest amount of uh, of foods that, in the right context, can be nourishing. I would agree with that. I think that the people that say that any type of gluten or any type of grains, that's an extreme take and not everyone's take. This is also something that I think could be a whole show in its own. In fact, I am looking at doing that topic. I don't have a date or uh, a guest announced for it yet, but it is something that I do want to explore. Is this something you would explore in your research at University of Illinois? Well, uh, I mean, it's definitely something that I'm interested in. Uh, my my plate is a little bit full at the moment, uh, but it would certainly be something I would be interested in in re- researching in the future uh, once I have the opportunity to expand into other fields. That would be great. We're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find your website, Cholesterol and Health. Sure. So uh, I have a website, cholesterolandhealth.com. That's with hyphens in between the words. If you want to follow my work, I have a blog uh, the Daily Lipid that is hosted uh, on cholesterolandhealth.com. If you go to the site and click on blog or if you just Google search The Daily Lipid, it'll come up. I have another blog, Mother Nature Obeyed, on westonaprice.org. And uh, if you want to follow all my work, uh, the best way is to just subscribe to my blog, The Daily Lipid, by RSS feed or by email. And anything that I post on Mother Nature Obeyed or anything that I publish in Wise Traditions or anywhere else, I always post a link to on The Daily Lipid. You can also follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, in, in, a, in addition, uh, I have special reports that I sell on my website, cholesterolandhealth.com. Plenty of free information about cholesterol uh, on that website as well. And then uh, finally, uh, we've been talking about research at the University of Illinois, so I should point out that um, anything that I've said here reflects just my own opinion, not necessarily the position of the University of Illinois or anyone uh, or any of my colleagues here. And also, if you're interested in supporting the research here, um, then uh, then 
certainly uh, the Weston A. Price Foundation is trying to raise donations for the lab. Uh, so if you head over to WestonAPrice.org um, and and look for information on that, any uh, any donations would be greatly appreciated uh, by all of us in the Weston A. Price Foundation, I'm sure. All good stuff to look into. Chris, pleasure to have you here. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This weekend, Saturday, October 12th, and Sunday, October 13th, from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. is the Artisanal L.A. Fair at the L.A. Mart in downtown Los Angeles. You can taste, shop, sample, and learn about various vendors making local, sustainable, and handmade edibles. The event also includes hands-on workshops, chef-led demos, expert panels, and speakers on food-related topics. Plus, you can learn about nonprofit organizations changing the local food scene in Los Angeles. For more information on the event, go to the website artisanalla.com. Also, this weekend on Saturday, October 12th, the Institute of Domestic Technology is offering its Milk Crafting 101 class. You can learn how to make yogurt, kefir, creme fraiche, paneer, chevrolet, and whey ricotta. To hear more about this workshop, go to the page instituteofdomestictechnology.com. And finally, this Sunday, we'll have activists all around the world uniting to march against Monsanto. You can go to the website march-against-monsanto.com to find the rally closest to you. The one in LA is at Wilshire in Vermont and begins at 11 a.m. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, go to the Weston A. Price Pasadena website at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. Next week, I introduce another Wise Tradition speaker as I interview kombucha camp's Hannah Crum as we talk about kombucha and cancer. For more information on my guests, as well as to listen to past interviews, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Uh, 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 uh.